The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. We have a brain that enables us to go beyond what animals can do, but we also have a part of our brain that's just like all, all other mammals, which is wired to react instinctively as if there were a tiger coming at us. And hey, there's usually no tiger, folks, but you're still reacting with these intense chemicals being released into your system that cause the fight, flight, and freeze. Welcome to the Mentor TV podcast and stay curious with Patricia Falco-Becali. Good to see you back to another edition here on Mentory TV from Crisis to Creation. Today, we're going to talk about something that I think everybody can somehow relate to, being triggered out of nowhere or so it seems. Does it sometimes happen to you that you don't know why, but one moment you were in a great mood and the next moment you just are so close to blowing your lid. Actually, you do blow your lid. You just lose it and you rip into somebody else close to you for whatever reason. They don't know. They don't have a clue and neither may you. And that that does not happen where there are some systems, some steps you can take. And I read a fantastic book about exactly this. It's called From Triggered to Tranquil and how self-compassion and mindful presence can transform relationship conflicts and heal childhood wounds by Susan Campbell, Dr. Susan Campbell. I may say, I devoured this book because I thought it was so fundamental and to be used in every kind of environment, be it with yourself outside, you know, not necessarily being in a social context, be it within the family, be it within the workplace. And Dr. Susan Campbell, she's joining us on the show today. Before introducing her to the show, let me quickly introduce the person. Um, Dr. Susan Campbell is a relationship coach. She's been into psychology coaching couples, coaching individuals for many, many years. She's appeared on CNN's Newsnight and Good Morning America. She is a guest lecturer at institutions such as Harvard and Stanford and UCLA. And in any case, one of the most prolific writers, she's published 11 books. This is number 12. Susan, so good to see you. Thank you very much for joining us here on Mentory TV. Thanks for inviting me, Patricia. Susan, you know, the first thing that I asked myself from triggered to tranquil and how to get there to just kind of not even get too triggered, never mind to then calm down again. What triggered you to actually write the book? <laughs> Watching so many people be so critical of themselves when they had an upset just thinking, oh I, oh, I should have all of my emotions under control at all times. And just see, seeing how many people go into a shame or, or hiding their true feelings because they need to you know, look good and look in control. But the fact is, so, so many people do have automatic trigger reactions. We'll talk about what those are in a second, but I think most people know like a knee-jerk automatic emotional outburst or shutdown. So there, I just defined it basically. So many people have that. Almost everybody actually. 
So I just wanted to bring some comfort to people and teach them how to actually work with the triggers that come up because they are a portal to where you need healing in yourself. So they're very useful. So we shouldn't be ashamed of them. We should welcome them and understand how to work with them. Yeah, yeah. I mean, to be triggered is really the reaction everybody sees. It is the reaction. That means it follows onto something that already happened within us. So what other people see is just a result of something that happened within us a split second before. And to find out whatever triggered us, isn't that the intricate part to to really find out and also to explain not only to the other people, but first and foremost to ourselves. And that's the useful part too, yes. And there's an inner child that didn't get to experience something it needed to experience or express something it needed to express. All of us shut down certain emotions when we were little because our nervous systems weren't developed enough to handle much intensity. And, you know, now we're adults, we can handle more intensity, but we've still got this inner wounded child inside of us that needs some loving attention. So, yeah, that's the purpose and that's what we can do for ourselves. Well, childhood trauma. I think we are all somehow traumatized during our childhood and poor parents. And I'm a parent myself. You know, you never know whatever you do, whether it's the right thing for your child or not. If it is the right thing right now, but in the long term really creates a childhood trauma. Tell us, what is actually a childhood trauma and how do we find out that it is the trauma that makes us really react years later decades later to whatever triggers us yeah and so most people when they hear the word trauma probably still think of some assault like like somebody hitting you or or, or yelling or abusing uh, or you know, completely neglecting you. But really, there's a new concept called developmental trauma, which means it's just what we were talking about. Just the average parent is too busy a lot of times or too preoccupied with their own needs or their work or whatever they've got that they can't meet all the child's needs for things like loving touch safety, like when you're crying or hurting, I go to you as a parent and, and say, you're safe, I'm with you now, and show the child how to regulate their nervous system. This is called co-regulation. All children need help learning to regulate their nervous systems, which means calm your upset nervous system. But parents often just know stick a toy in the in the child's hands or if the child's crying and they're really little pacifier i'm not saying there's there's something wrong with these things but what the child really needs is to be picked up and held and soothed and so things like that just the neglect of meeting those early childhood needs for love safety and co-regulation and touch loving touch um the neglect of those is called developmental trauma, and almost every one of us has that. You just mentioned safety, Susan, and that really struck a chord with me because I think, especially as a parent, 
let's take parent-child relationship as an example. You know, the sense of safety that we try to give to a child might not necessarily fall that way. So if a child feels unsafe, they feel that they are constantly under potential attack or in potential danger. And if you think about it, we are actually wired like this. We are wired more to be cautious rather than riskiest in our in our attitude because, hey, you know, our past was maybe there's a sable-toothed tiger around the corner and just ripping us apart. So we were always kind of more cautious in order to survive. It doesn't matter if we have a boring life or not, you know, that is kind of secondary. So our reaction by DNA is a triple F, fight, flight, or freeze. But how can we really make sure that our children have that sense of safety to be calm and not to necessarily, uh, you know, create this kind of childhood trauma? So one of the things parents can do is learn to manage your own trigger reactions. So as you know, as we go through this interview, we'll talk about how to do that. But what kids need to see is a parent, if they're upset, parents do get upset. So <laughs> the parent start, if the parent could only recognize the early warning signs, and that's what the book shows, how to recognize, oh, my face is starting to get hot. Or I'm starting, I'm, I'm starting to feel like punching something, you know, as a parent, maybe not the child, but just, you know, feeling energy in my arms. Know that these are the early warning signs that you, the parent, are starting to get activated in a way that, it, that we call triggering. And you're going to go on automatic and do something, some version of fight, like yelling or hitting, flight, which is basic basically running away and ignoring the child like i can't deal with you now or freeze that's the deer in the headlights reaction so those are all the typical trigger reactions so parents be aware that you're likely to go into one of those three f's we call them know which one is your early warning system and show the child oh mommy's starting mommy's starting to get upset let me calm myself down. Mm -hmm. Actually demonstrate to the child self-regulation. Yes, Susan. I mean, it seems so unfair. Sometimes it seems that one little thing, one little incident in your past really caused the trauma that you carry with yourself through your entire life and sometimes never overcome, including therapy, excluding therapy. But I think what is really interesting is in your book, you talk about your trigger signature, a personal trigger signature, uh, because we all have different experiences. Having grown up with different parents in different situations means we do have a different background. And within that, of course, the triggers are happening because our wounds are very, very different. Tell us a little bit more about that and how we can really also avoid to, to have triggers or at least to be aware of our own trigger signature or find out about it. Something to your wiring and your nervous system. It makes the, these developmental traumas makes it really hard for the prefrontal cortex 
which is the, the calming, reasonable, cooperative part of the brain to soothe the excited amygdala part of the brain. That's where the survival reactions come from. They're actually brain wires, not wires literally, but connections that get disrupted that are supposed to develop in children to be able to self-calm. So those that wiring develops when you have that co-regulation or you see mommy calming herself, that, that helps the wiring, but it disrupts the wiring when mommy loses it and maybe even blames the child. Or even if you don't blame the child, children are so sensitive, they pick up, yeah. it must be me. And so that's something to be aware that, of. Absolutely. I'm so happy, Susan, you just mentioned the structure of our brain. Because when I think about what really distinguishes us humans to all the other creatures is our prefrontal cortex, really. The ability to be able to make conscious choices rather than uh, reactive, reptile-like choices. And um, whilst we do have the choice, how often do we really move away from that capability of engaging the prefrontal cortex and kind of drop back to the amygdala. And I, and I wonder, you know, when something happens, why, why is it so difficult for us to just stay calm and not to revert back to, you know, hundreds of years of not being a homo sapiens? And, you know, I always say, when people say, well, you know, we are only human and I have to laugh and please you know, if you disagree with me, do so. I always say, well, because we are humans, not we are only humans, because we are humans, we have the choice. We can make the right decisions. We can choose to stay calm in certain certain situations, but it is hard, isn't it? I agree with you. Yeah, yeah right. We Thank can you. consciously <laughs> self-improve. We can consciously self-improve where the lower animals not so well. Yeah. And you know what you just said makes me think also of us being slaves. So one thing is, of course, the brain and the structure of the brain and the potential choice we can make between, um, you know, being more like a beast or like a human. And that is we really are slaves to our hormones. I mean, let's discuss that a little bit. When we are stressed, the chemistry of our body just changes. And in order to fight that, that is really, really hard. If all of a sudden you've got dopamine, cortisol, adrenaline, noradrenaline, anything just flushing through your body to then kind of change that chemistry spot on right there when you need to be rational, when you need to be sensible is really hard. Take us through that. We, we, we have a brain that enables us to go beyond what animals can do, but we also have a part of our brain that's just like all, all other mammals, which is wired to react instinctively as if there were a tiger coming at us. And hey, there's usually no tiger, folks, but you're still reacting with these intense chemicals being released into your system that cause the fight, flight, and freeze. So that's another reason why I don't think we should be too hard on ourselves because we've all got this reptilian brain and this middle brain that has the amygdala, which is scanning for danger. You, you referred to that earlier. We're safety conscious. We all are scanning for danger at one level of our brain all the time. 
Yeah, exactly. And and we just have to consciously fight against it. And that what brings me to your trigger work that you talk about in in your book, From Trigger to Tranquil. Take us through this five steps of your trigger work and how that systematic approach to really get rid or maybe not only get rid, but maybe before you get triggered, understand that you may get triggered, that you are being triggered and divert your back from it. There is a system that you try to explain, that you try to communicate in your book. Take us through it. Okay. Well, this is to help our, our viewers notice your own early warning signs that you're trying, I mean, that you're starting to get triggered. So we call it your trigger signature. Like, what do you tend to do when something upsetting happens? So first, we have to accept that, hey, we all have triggers. We all have this part of our, our brain that does that, what we were just saying, that reacts quickly. And, and that's the hardest part is just to accept, man, I do have this part of my brain and it's my responsibility to learn how to manage this better. Oh, that's part of the growth, the growth and development. But it's empowering as well, because yes, I don't want to be a victim and I yeah. can do something about it. Hmm? Yeah. And then learn to actually notice the early warning signs. So think of a time when you yourself got triggered by somebody who was important to you. Maybe it was a spouse, or maybe it was your one of your parents or your child. Usually getting triggered has something to do with feeling disconnected or a, feeling a threat to the connection between yourself and somebody that's important to you. So it's no longer about lions and tigers. It's about separation, you know, abandonment, rejection, Fear. or feeling controlled. You know, that's the, that's the meaning that humans give to this sense of disconnection. So no, what is your core fear? Is your core fear, fear of rejection, abandonment, being controlled, being ignored? My voice doesn't matter. You'll, you'll figure this out as you start to look at your trigger signature. So you look at what stories play in my head when my, when my partner, I'm talking, I'm talking to him in what I thought was a, a reasonable way. And um, in fact, I'm enjoying the conversation. And he just stands up and says, I'm going to bed now. Okay, he didn't hit me. He didn't yell at me. He just said, I'm going to bed now. And I get triggered. I and I get mad. How dare yeah, you? Yeah, so different people. Some people get mad. Some people feel, feel kind of small, like I'm not important. See, there's different signatures. You might get mad and I might start to feel small and somebody else might just ignore it and not realize that they were triggered and they just go, okay. Uh, so a lot of us probably would. We'd just go, okay, and we'd hide it but we'd still feel something deep down and it would affect our connection tomorrow. You know, so some triggers can be kind of overlooked in a way, but they still affect the relationship. So anyway, that's, the, um, that's one of the things you look for is what's my inner reaction when that event happened? What do I tell myself? Oh, I'm not that important. Maybe this relationship isn't important to him. Maybe I should start protecting myself. So, and, and 
if you go through this analysis, this self-analysis with a number of different triggering events, you might see a different kind of self-protective story. Like one person will say, boy, I'm, you know, I'm going to read him the riot act tomorrow. And another person might say, well, I'm going to start playing it cooler and try to you know, play hard to get or, or protect myself in some way. So just watch that. So it's like, what happened that triggered me? So you do a little analysis. What happened? What happened outside of here? What happened inside here in terms of my thoughts, my physical sensations, my emotions, like hurt feelings or anger? And then what, what meaning did I make out of it? Like, you know, I'm not important to him. So we tend to make meaning. We call those your reactive stories. And all of that has clues to what that inner child yeah. needed and didn't get. But so that's, so I'm giving, giving you the five steps. So I've only given you two now. Acceptance is one. Knowing the early warning signs that show you're triggered. Then learning how to pause. Mm-hmm. Almost like pushing pause on a recording mm-hmm. machine. You try, if you're in an engagement with somebody, you have an agreement. If like if you're married partners, mm-hmm. you would I would suggest, and I show how to do this uh, in the book, how to create a pause agreement. So anybody who feels they're starting to get triggered, don't let it escalate. Just say pause, and that's a signal. We're both going to do some slow, conscious breathing, some feeling our feet on the floor or our rear end on the chair. I, I give different grounding exercises, or some people will just want to take a walk mm-hmm. to learn what calms your nervous system. So that's the next step is pausing and calming yourself. That goes to that's one step. Then the next step is doing some inner self-compassion work. And I have exercises in the book, self-guided workbook type activities where start with what the feeling was, just like we were doing a minute ago. What did I start to feel when he walked out of the room? What did I tell myself? And just start to tune into yourself like a good mother holds their child when their child's upset. And I'm doing this right now. Yeah. Because so many people, when they're going through this self-compassion work, just instinctively either touch themselves somewhere or do this to themselves. Mm. And so now I suggest people try something like that or Mm. try different things and find out what works to help your inner child feel like you're not alone. So we activate kind of the good mother archetype, the inner part of the self that is nurturing and loving and kind of knows what you need. And I have found, Patricia, that every single one of us has inside of us the capacity for self-nurturance, but it's often very deeply buried. So we have to activate that consciously. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know. I know. Exactly. But you know, this self-soothing, this is just not part of our culture, at least not of my culture. I was not taught that when I made a mistake or things went wrong to just sit there and kumbaya myself. And please, I don't mean that in an offensive way. I just mean it in the way that I was told, okay, yes, it sucks. Um, Cry a little bit, but please pull up your panties and just 
march on. It's not part of our culture to, you know, show that vulnerability, let alone wallowing in it. So, you know, how, how can you really teach people that it is okay to sit there and maybe just not play victim, but take a time out for oneself? I think just being able to say, ooh, I'm starting to get triggered. That is, it, that is so empowering for yourself because then you don't lose it if you can at least notice that because that now you're activating another part of your brain, which is the observer, the witness, the noticer. And you're that's yourself out. You're becoming more yeah. objective towards yourself. Got it. And that, that is a, a key development on this human journey. That's we need to develop beyond just being at the effect of all of our emotions and, and have like have a part of ourselves that's in charge. Yeah. yeah, right, right, Susan. And this is exactly the moment where you need to take responsibility and make a time out possible, the pause possible. But that is really, really difficult. On the other hand, you know, it's kind of like a, a deja vu of crap that bubbles up again because it is the same trigger signature. It is the same childhood trauma that comes up. But the pause, the breathing really may change everything. Right. It is a deja vu kind of thing. Isn't it? Isn't it? And, and you know, but it's not conscious. It's, it's sort of a that's subliminal deja vu, like something similar to this happened when I was unprotected, when I was younger, when I was still under my parents' care, because that's when most of the developmental traumas happen. It's when you're a child. You, there, I mean, there are other traumas that can happen, like in an early marriage, and you, you, know, you learn that you, you just can't say boo to a person who has a certain manner about them, and then you carry that into your next marriage. There's that kind of uh, trauma too, but um, most of them are childhood wounds. Trauma, yes. But you know, there needs to be collaboration. Nobody is living in a vacuum. And if there is a pause agreement, it's an agreement between different parties, be it between me and my child, me and my boss, me and my team members, me and anybody that I'm in a potential communication conflict with. And I just wonder, you know, if you if you want to repair, which is one of your, you know, trigger steps, or how to manage trigger steps, you cannot repair unless you pause, unless you come back to your senses, unless you can think straight because you're back in your prefrontal cortex. Okay. So a, you need collaboration. You're not in a vacuum. You need to pause to even get from pause to the next steps of repairing that moment and really progress in a positive way. And if I say pause and my partner is still talking and talking, I might have to say pause again. But eventually, if I don't take the bait and start arguing again and I just say pause or I'm just quiet and kind of inward, they'll have to pause. So it's a collaboration in that way too. Exactly, exactly. And, and, when, I, you pause, and when you pause, then you're taking responsibility. Oh yes, I'm triggered. What was, it at, what was that about? And um, then you're collaborating in a sense. You're both doing something that's for the good of the relationship. 
Yeah, exactly. And that brings us back to the biochemistry. I, I don't know anybody that's, uh, you know, been studying, got a lot of pressure from the parents. I mean, the more your parents shouted at you for not understanding, I don't know, some schoolwork, the less you would understand. And uh, if I think as a parent as well, and, you know, seeing to put pressure on your child, you got to come on, it can't be possible that you don't understand. This is like so easy. What happens there is so significant because what happens is in the mind of the child. And it's not even the mind, the mind is being blocked because putting pressure, stress on a person changes the chemistry. And we talked about it already. And when the chemistry changes and the human body feels under threat, there's only three reactions that we know. And it doesn't matter whether we are living in 2022 or not. We only know fight, flight, or freeze. You can't run away. You can't fight your parents. So what do you do? You freeze and everything freezes up. So definitely studying becomes even less of a possibility, right? That's yes, right. Dear. Put them into their fight, flight, freeze. And you're not going to pick that up as a parent. They'll just kind of get a little quiet, maybe. Let's talk about the work environment. I think very, very tricky to have somebody in the team or somebody you have to work with at work that is one of those people that are always sitting half on, you know, exploding dynamite. So what happens is what I've seen in my past is that people start pussyfooting around these people just not to trigger them, just not to have them react somehow, blow their lid, and then really everything is impossible. You know, I find this highly unprofessional because what these kind of people do, they hold the rest of the team hostage. So I wonder, how do you deal in the work environment with a person, especially, let's say, as their boss? Do you approach them and say, hey, you've got anger management issues. You need to kind of huh, go to the psychologist. I don't think so, because personally, I would really be interested in why are they reacting to certain things? What sort of childhood trauma really sets them off? And can one genuinely do something about it? Not me as a boss, not the team, but really in a professional way. But how do you handle that? Isn't that super tricky? Well, if you're the manager, let's say, and this is somebody who reports to you, then then you're you've got a little a little bit of power. We don't have a whole lot of power over another person's triggers. But one thing we want to do is help educate them, because part of a manager's job is to guide and educate that um I understand you know, that there's a lot of sensitivity, that there's a lot of things you're sensitive to in this, in, in this environment. So let's have a pause agreement. You know, you'll have your one-on-one -on -one with this person, and then you, you train them to have a pause agreement. And you even say, I'll, you know, I'll support you in, the, in, in meetings. We can say to people, if anybody starts to feel activated, triggered, and we define what that means. Anybody in the group can say the word pause and we'll all take five slow, deep breaths. Because when one person's activated and, and they're starting to seem a little off, it affects the working ability of the whole group. Yeah. So let's just honor that right away. We'll pause now. No, everybody cool now. We've taken five slow, deep breaths. Can we get back to work? Yeah. 
But as a but manager, my, my counsel this person if they can't if they can't calm themselves you. five breaths, they might go take a bathroom break. It, it, exactly. I mean, thank you for that because that would have been my approach. And I go like, okay, if this guy is triggered or that lady is triggered all the time, so there's an underlying fear. And me as a caring manager, I want to not just say pause and then kind of like have a little bit of panacea on the top and then just hope that next time he just calms down, but go a bit deeper and really try to say, okay, this is a team member. Obviously he has a problem with something, that trauma. How can yeah. I, how can I go deeper and really, I don't want to say pull the person out and say, let's have therapy. You know, <laughs> I think that would be hugely unpopular. But you know, if you want to go a level deeper and really care for the person, yeah, yeah. I would uh, buy the book from Triggered to Tranquil <laughs> and and show it to them. Don't there just it give, is. <laughs> don't just give somebody a book, but you say, you know, I came across this book and it shows what to do to help yourself become inwardly more resilient in social situations, the kind that seem to upset you. And um, I'll work with you on this yeah, and yeah. No, kind of go through some, look, does this look like something you could do? And sometimes you have to exit from the meeting for you know, five minutes, just like a bathroom break and calm yourself. Yeah, I know. I, I mean, core fears. Susan, you know, in your book, you talk about the core fears and you listed them which I thought was very interesting. So if I had to, um, I don't know, identify a person through their core fears and then, you know, handle them in a certain way, I don't really know. Because when I went through through that list, I thought, uh-huh, core fear, I have that. Yeah, no, I can relate to that. Oh, I have that too. Oh my God, I have that too. And all of a sudden I find myself that all of these fears you're listed, um, they are core fears, but they're also my core fears. So is it really not just a general kind of, you know, bunch of core fears that we all have more or less that continuously may be set off? Good idea too is help the person go, you know, what do you think it is? Look at, let's look at this list together. What do you think it is that's, that you're most sensitive to? Well, that then we know what kind of self-soothing you need. We need, you need the kind of self-soothing where you tell yourself you're not alone. We develop that witness and we activate that good mother archetype and help the wounded part of you feel like, oh, there's another part of me that empathizes and understands. So we really are building more self-support. We, we all need a lot more self-support and, and self-regulation. Self-soothing. I mean, we talked about it already early on, that it is really hard if you're not growing up in a culture where safe, self-soothing really is, um, is a core part of just calming your nerves, okay? Um, what we have more in our, in our society is mood shifters, uh, people somehow trying to soothe their pain or cover their pain up, not by hugging and calming and breathing and yoga and forgiving, but by using sex, drugs and rock and roll, you know, just by somehow mood shift. That's more our culture. To learn some new moves like this or exactly. something. 
you know, now, now, honey, or I've, I've witnessed different people come up with different soothing mechanisms, like either speaking or touch. Yeah. And whilst it's not part of your book we're discussing today, Susan, but still um, all the way through reading it, I was also thinking about addiction. And if there's something that I find really hard to understand is how come, and I'm sure you know, because you've been dealing with these kind of people, how come that, let's say you're an alcoholic, you've been an alcoholic for, I don't know, 14 years, and then you are sober, all right? You're sober for about seven years or something, and everything goes fine. And all of a sudden, something happens And after seven years of not touching a drop of alcohol, you're back at the bottle. How is that possible? I mean, how can the strength and also the habit change of seven years be wiped out by something that's triggered within us? Please take us through this. The... The, al the alcoholic, let's just say the alcoholic, and of course there's many degrees of this, uh, and almost all addictions, the behavior we choose, whether it's you know, drinking or shopping or, or um, just a over sex addiction or whatever, yeah. Whatever those be yeah. behavior is, that is an escape from feeling our actual feelings from feeling the pain of that inner wounded child, pretty much. Mm -hmm. um, it's something happened, and it could be just a ser series of events in your earlier life that were overwhelming enough to your nervous system. So you, you, know, you connected with a substance, let's call it the alcohol. So we, we, you connected with a substance to calm your emotional pain. And so then now you, you get sober for seven years, but um, you still haven't really fully dealt with your fear of emotional pain. So it's the fear of emotional pain that causes these addictions and that causes most of the rest of us to <clears throat> avoid conversations that we ought to be having with people. Yeah. I mean, some of us are just... Uh, no, addicted to being nice yeah because we're you know afraid of of, yeah, of being rejected people please yeah, we might, exactly we might be rejected or abandoned if, so in a way we're we're all addicted to some kind of pain avoidance yes substances. mood shifters mood shifters yeah that's right so if you're in a program you know aa is pretty good like as a as a program but it may not It, it does focus a lot on self-control. It may not get you all the way to healing those childhood wounds. So this self-compassion work is so important that every one of us has to do now because we all need reparenting. Yeah, oh my God, reparenting. Not only repair, reparenting. Exactly. We really need you know, all humans so that we can calm these activated nervous systems get along better and cooperate to solve the real problems yeah. in the world okay exactly exactly <laughs> drop ourselves for a minute you know just yeah. say we are okay we are enough we are loved yeah. we are not neglected da, da, da. let's just focus that on. would be nice and that's we're evolving to that i think as as a species but back to the the <clears throat> 
person who was dry for seven years and then some tragedy, you know, his, mm. his wife leaves him or something. I've seen this happen, just what you're saying. And he goes off the wagon and has a binge. It, that means, I mean, there's, there's, this is not, a, this is not probably a time when a person's, when they're going back to their substance, it's not a time when a person's going to pick up this, this book. No, that's uh, their way of self-soothing. They need At to that pick, point, that's the addiction to self-soothing. Yeah, they need to pick up the book to prevent yeah. going back to your, to your addiction. And so even if you are successfully sober, I really want to say to everybody, have you gone deeply enough into that childhood pain that you've been trying to run away from and really felt see this the the activities that I guide people to experience in the book it's just like it's a kind of therapy you guide yourself and you feel oh am I getting too activated oh I'll do some self-calming okay now I'm ready to go back and try this again and it's just like a good therapist because I've done this with so many people, I've, I've kind of written a script for how to heal your fear of emotional pain. Yes, yeah, Susan, and let me just pick up on a key word you said, and that is again, you know? And I think repetition makes the champion, not necessarily talent, but it's the application, the repetition, the discipline of doing the same thing over and over and over again. And there are so many theories how long it really takes to create a habit. And uh, one of my favorite scientists, doctors, um, and writers is Dr. Joe Dispenser. And he's got the key line, which is so true. What fires together, wires together. And he's talking about the neurons, of course. And what you have is the more you repeat a certain behavior or thought or whatever you do, okay, the more ingrained it is in your brain. It fires together, it wires together, it talks about the neurons. And of course, the more you do something, the more you repeat something over and over again, the more it becomes not only a habit, it becomes a part of you. So, you know, you you say that we need to retrain, basically. How long does it really take to, you know, get away from these very easy mood shifters of drugs and alcohol, which is also a drug, or, uh, you know, uh, binge eating or some sort of soother to the positive kind of soothing? We don't know how long it'll take any one individual. It depends a lot on your ability to stay focused on a feeling and and then if it gets too intense, come out of it voluntarily and then go back into it. And when I say a feeling, I mean the kind of feeling that's painful that you might want to avoid. So we, <clears throat> like how long does it take any, anybody to like lose 10 pounds? You know, it takes different ones of us because- Even though the yeah. theory is how long it takes really. To, to change a habit. And it, I, I guess uh, it depends from person to person or from how long you had a habit before you're trying to change it. So if it was something that's been going on for a couple of years, might be easier to change than something that's been going on for a couple of decades in terms of habits. But uh, I wonder how long does it really take? Habits. You can change habits when you're clear about what 
habit, what the habit is, and you can see it, and then you practice. So it is. It's a it's a matter of practice. Well, Susan, just to start concluding our conversation here on Mentory TV, you know, a, a couple of key takeaways, only a couple I'm going to mention here um, with, with you and the Mentory TV community is certainly acceptance. Um, I think a lot of us struggle with our own triggers or behaviors we don't like about ourselves um, to really admit and accept that this is part of us because it is so below us as we think maybe of ourselves better. And we can't believe that again, we were triggered and again, we fell into the same rabbit hole. But I think acceptance that there is a wall in front of us that we have to either climb over or run down and somehow get rid of the, of, of the gravel that, uh, that uh, rests is the first step. So that is really That is really one of the big uh, takeaways, the acceptance. And only then you really are in a, in a position to say, okay, I endorse, I endorse this bad behavior of myself. And now I can look at where do I want to get? What do I want to do? What sort of better behavior can I come up with over and over again that really the old behavior I can let go of? What are your key takeaways? Just remember that emotional pain will not kill you. It would have a certain amount of intense uh, fear-inducing emotions as a child would have killed you. So you probably shut down. We all shut down. There's nothing wrong with that when we were young. Once you're an adult, it's time to revisit those childhood events And bring back some of the feeling, move some of the energy that got stuck and frozen at age seven. You know how some people just have a voice, a seven-year-old voice. Yep. Move that energy. These are the tools that can help you grow beyond being, being stuck, avoiding emotional pain. And then the whole world opens up to you, in a sense, because you know that if you make a mistake or if something negative happens... You have a way to soothe yourself and bring yourself back to, okay, now what do we do? Bring yourself back to the present moment. Yeah. So this, this is a prescription for living life to the fullest. Yeah. But Susan, do you think we can really do that by ourselves, really change everything? Your book is fabulous, but I, I wonder how often I could really 100% follow through, follow up, follow through, we are potentially professional help. Don't you think that professional help is the real key in, um, in really changing long-term and sustainably something that we need to change? Both. Is, <laughs> okay. Both is best. Yeah. Because <laughs> when I'm working with people, they have homework. You know, they need to be doing something on their own as well. Because this What this really is, is like yoga. You know, you do it regularly for the rest of your life kind of thing. It's just a habit. It's a practice. But after a while, it can, it can take just like less than a minute to process a trigger. That's where I'm at now because I've had so much practice. It can be very quick. Mm -hmm. Oh, I, I feel that rejection feeling, that familiar feeling. I know what to do. Yeah. And then I'm back. Yeah. to the present moment again. Here we are. So um, just remember, you can have conscious control 
over these unconscious automatic reactions if, if you do the practices. Well, that's so beautiful, Susan. Thank you so much. And let me just leave you with a quote on page 39, which I thought was really beautiful. And let me just read this uh, out to you. It says, I believe that every unpleasant thing that occurs, whether inside us or in the world, can be the starting point for knowing ourselves in a deeper way. Further, I believe it is helpful whenever we notice fear arising to pause in the midst of our normal activities and to inquire into the roots of this fear. And I think, again, you mentioned the pause, which kind of helps us to get over that moment of all of a sudden just becoming a reptile, automatic kind of behavioral being and and really just think okay what am i doing here why am i doing it and is this good and as i always say to my 17 year old victoria i say well you know if you have a tough moment then try not only to go through it but to grow through it well i would say both you might have to re go through it um to grow through it. Well, I don't know what age your daughter is. So. 17, sweet 17. Uh, okay, so, uh, <laughs> so you might have to feel some of the feelings in order to grow through it. But make sure when you feel difficult feelings, you're there with yourself. Or, okay. or you got mommy there with you. Because we really don't like to go through these things all alone. But in us, and in a sense... Once we activate this inner good mother, we're never alone again. Yeah, you're so right, Susan. Thank you so much again. And thank you, dear Mentory TV community, for having joined us yet again for another edition, this time with Dr. Susan Campbell. Get the book, From Trigger to Tranquil, and the five steps of really trying to just find out about your triggers and try to not to be triggered and kind of cause havoc, not only for yourself, but of course for your environment. Excellent book. And um, yeah, as I said, I hope you're going to join us on the next edition. And until then, make sure to stay curious. Bye.